Hello and welcome to episode number 13 of the Lines Podcast. My name is Matt Brown, joined each and every week by some of the brightest minds in all of the gaming industry. This week, guys, we are without Dustin, and I gotta be honest, he's not gonna listen to this because he's out getting married, so I'm kind of glad he's gone. I mean, like, let's be honest, I'm glad that it's just uh, it's me, Eric Ramsey, and of course we have Brett Colson as well. I mean, how do you guys feel about Dustin being gone? I'm pretty sure we can do whatever we want this week, right? I, you guys want to start taking shots, or what should we do? With When the cat's away, the mice will play? Yeah, absolutely. I'm honestly shocked that he's not on the podcast. I think if we if we asked him to, he would be on the podcast on his way to the wedding. For on the, sure. On the, remote, the limo trip to the wedding, he would be on it if he yeah, could. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, and again, he's not going to be listening to this, so like, this is probably going to be our best pod since he's not here. Like, We'll just, we'll just talk all the crap about him that we can, uh, because this is a pretty, pretty certain that that the wife is not going to let him take time to listen to 45 minutes of us jabbering about gaming news. What do you think? I feel like, you know, he's kind of left the ship in our hands here. Yeah. He's our editor and we're kind of, kind of running the ship for him here. But I, I, I'd be shocked if he's not checking in on us from time to time, <laughs> just knowing how our buddy Dustin is. I, I can't imagine we're not being looked in upon from, from afar to some extent. Oh, he's for sure listening to this podcast at some point. <laughs> Uh, like we said, episode number 13 here, guys, we are on iTunes, so be sure to go in and subscribe, rate, and review. We really like those five stars. We really like those reviews. Be sure and talk about how amazing we are at everything that we do, and that will perhaps talk some people into hitting that subscribe button as well, and also rating and reviewing us as well. We thank you very much for all of that. Into the quick hitters here, as usual, we'll talk some FanDuel a little bit. We'll talk some DraftKings a little bit. We'll talk to MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred, and he did a couple of interviews over the All-Star break and said a lot of interesting things. And then we'll wrap things up talking about the World Series of Poker and how it came to an end with a $1 million buy-in tournament. But the World Cup is over. Guys, I watched a grand total of about 45 minutes total of the World Cup. Soccer is a joke to me. I think it is an absolute terrible sport. The worst spectator sport on the face of the planet. But it's over. We have a winner. Who cares? But the World Cup odds for 2022. 2022 are already out. Yes, four years from now. If you want to lock in that futures bet and sit on that for four years, my friend, go right ahead and do that. Brazil, the six to one favorite. France, six and a half to one. Germany, uh, Spain, Argentina follow those guys. And Croatia, who made the finals this year, coming in at 30 to one there in 2022. The USA at 60 to one. Of course, they did not make the World Cup this year. Eric, did you put in some time watching the World Cup this year? Yeah, what the hell? 45 minutes, Matt? That's yeah. not, uh, I mean, I thought you were a sports fan and you live in Nevada where you can legally wager on such games as World Cup games. You what know are you what? doing? You know what? I boycott, I boycott betting on the World Cup because I think soccer is such a joke. If you watch soccer and then you, if you can like get past all the ridiculous flopping and all the different things like that, I, I just don't know how you do it. I mean, the, the lack of scoring is one thing. And of course th there were, uh, there were some games with a lot of goals, but for the majority, uh, you know, the lack of scoring is one thing, but I just, I can get past that. I just cannot get past all the ridiculousness that goes on with these guys like literally get bumped into and then roll around on the ground like they just got shot from, you know, a shotgun or something like that. Brett, did you put in time watching the World Cup this year? Man, I want to like soccer because this it truly is the greatest sporting event in the world. I appreciate that. But I'm I'm with you. I can't watch these guys flop the Neymar flop that went viral. Yeah. All, it's I don't understand. Why are these guys doing this? I don't know. 
I don't know. I was I, telling one of our colleagues, I, I really enjoy the World Cup. I think it is a, a beautiful spectacle of sport and, and nationalism and community and things like that. And uh, I have no desire to watch soccer outside of the World Cup. Once every four years is is just about all I can handle for, for the things you guys are talking about. Yeah, it's like the Olympics. I mean, like the Olympics come around and then everyone on your Twitter timeline tries to pretend like curling is the best sport that ever was invented. And they try to say that it's like, oh man, I'm so into it. And it's like, no, you're not. You're definitely not into curling. You're not into any of these sports that are going on here outside of the you know traditional sports and stuff like that. You just want to pretend like you are. And you know who you are. So don't be that guy the next time the Olympics roll around. Stop being that guy. Don't be that guy on the Twitter machine for the World Cup when it rolls around again either because you're not soccer guy most of these i've never and then the people who are soccer guy decide they really want to ham up how big they are soccer guy i will be interested though when the numbers finally get tallied and everything like that to see what the handle was for the total of the world cup obviously being a multi-week event and everything like that um curious to see how people took to it um when it comes to the to the betting side of things like i said i i typically like to bet on on most things but uh, i did not place a single world cup bet this year i'm anxious to see the uh the numbers from new jersey once these futures bets are settled i mean we assume that a fair amount of the futures bets placed there were two and a half million um in futures bets placed during the first 17 days of betting so we assume a fair amount of these are on are on the world cup so i'm anxious to see what the numbers uh look like after they shake out from settle up and how about uh the old senator lesniak with the two sharp bets on france one at monmouth park and one at meadowlands he got some money down on the uh on the champs this year i, I should, forgot about that yeah i should have tailed him i guess <laughs> i mean if the, when we were all coming down to it if i wanted to place his, a bet his, i should have just tailed it. his other bet is the futures on the giants to win the super bowl though so maybe he's not the best uh <laughs> not the best candidate for tailing um looking moving into new york here eric you wrote uh, an article kind of uh, updating us on things that are going on there in new york so why don't you fill in our great listening audience here yeah so this is uh to give you the lay of the land uh new york has legal sports betting on the books. Um, a voter referendum in 2013 allowed the four commercial casinos to offer sports betting. That's not happening yet. Regulators are sort of dragging their feet. Um, in the meantime, we're starting to see some partnerships appear. Uh, DraftKings has just secured a partnership in New York kind of out of nowhere. They're going to be teamed up with Del Lago, which is uh, one of the casinos up here in the 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 woods of New York. It's sort of in the middle of nowhere. But uh, DraftKings has found its entry point into New York sports betting if and when that ever actually happens. I did have to Google. I had to use the Google machine to figure out where Waterloo, New York was. I did not know. Dude, where I, I live a half hour away and I still can't find the place sometimes. <laughs> it really is in the middle of nowhere. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is obviously an online play here on DraftKings part. I mean, the deal is for both physical and online. Jason Robbins, who's the CEO and co-founder, came out and said New York is one of the largest revenue opportunities for future sports wagering operators. And we are thrilled to partner with Del Lago Resort and Casino to offer sports fans a unique and novel sports bet experience both at a physical sports book and on mobile when permitted brett it seems like new york is probably going to be i mean you know we've said this before and, and of course legislation gets stalled for for various reasons but it seems like new york is, is a pretty big favorite to be a go in 2019 so with DraftKings, like i said this seems to be more of an online play because they expect to have a very sharp app. Of course, they kind of teased that a little bit earlier this week and things like that. But, you know, when you're in uh, partnering with a casino in Waterloo, New York, that people who live a half hour away don't even know where it is. Uh, it seems like this is an online play to me. Yeah, this is 100 percent online. And, and people can find 
this casino. It is right off. I was the... exaggerating. Yes, yes. I know. I is... know. We spe- <laughs> it we're is speaking. right off the main throughway in New York. So I mean, you can find it, but it is uh, it, it is not a place you're going to uh, visit and stick around and place some bets. You're just gonna get kind of a passing through place a bet kind of thing. That being said, I'm still pretty intrigued by the retail side of this. We know, you know, FanDuel has retail sports books, uh, one in New Jersey and a couple more coming. So the fact that DraftKings will actually have a physical presence is kind of interesting to me out of this deal. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and listen, of course, New York, I, I agree with Robbins that New York is, you know, just going to be the most massive market there is when it comes to all of this, of course, of the states that there's any sort of likelihood. Of course, we heard that uh what did they say that there would be a better chance of san diego breaking off and falling into the ocean than something getting done in california so obviously we're we're, we're looking at new york here uh as the big big state for something like this FanDuel partnered with igt they aim for an online sportsbook launch by football season igt sports betting technology combined with the expertise of FanDuel represents two experienced complementary sports betting companies coming together to create a reliable world-class sports betting experience in new jersey coming from my new favorite name in all of gaming enrico drago he is the igt senior vice president of interactive and sports betting guys tell me a better name than enrico drago and uh i'll I'll buy you a beer gee i got nothing for you yeah sorry that's a pretty good name isn't it i'm kind of jealous i mean seriously uh enrico drago you are welcome on this podcast at any time if you would like to come on strictly so i can introduce you as enrico drago i would really love to do that um, listen, of course, we. one of the things that came out, Eric, that was pretty big is, is, and we talked a little bit about this a couple of weeks ago, but, you know, Betfair is going to be, uh, you know, operating their books here in the States under the FanDuel brand. Yeah, and this is an, an sort of an enormous, enormous conglomerate deal here. We have... Uh, we have uh, Meadowlands providing the the license. We have a FanDuel brand for the sports book, uh, backed by Patty Power, Betfair, Lines, and Risk Management. And then we have two more suppliers, IGT and GAN, providing the uh, the logistics and the platform. So, uh, really, four huge companies and one large property teaming up to to make sports betting happen here at Meadowlands. Pretty big deal. Yeah, this is a monster. Yeah, and and Brett, an article over at the Lines that. Uh, I found pretty interesting and it was making the rounds on the Twitter machine as well amongst the sports betting public and things like that was when FanDuel launched there in the Meadowlands, they had some interesting lines come out. Yeah, this was unfortunate. And, you know, we harp on consumer protection and and sort of weeding out the offshore sites in favor of the, the new regulated sites in the U.S. markets. And then FanDuel strolls in and just gouges people on day one, what was it? 25, 25 cent lines. Like I, I don't understand this. Thirty and forty cent lines 30, in places. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. See, I, I don't understand this from a business perspective. Uh, yes, we know people are going to travel into Meadowlands specifically to place a bet on Saturday, and they're going to leave with a ticket in hand, regardless. But the optics of this are just terrible. Fanduel, now known as the the book that squeezed betters in New Jersey on the day they opened, and then that's something that people are going to remember. Yeah, it was pretty interesting when I saw that kind of making the rounds. Now, look, I understand that there's, you know, a, does a better have to place a bet? No, but like you said, there were people who were specifically traveling in to make a bet that day. I mean, it was kind of like the new shiny toy and stuff like that, and. To, to see those lines was a bit disappointing. I mean, obviously, as online gets launched, uh, you know, here hopefully sometime soon, 
then people can shop and they don't have to just pay whatever is is being offered or something like that. But Eric, you know, the optics for something like this is certainly when it was such a big deal and making the rounds around the around you know the the Twitter sphere and things like that was was not the greatest. Yeah, it's not a great first impression for FanDuel, and you know I don't. I'm sort of wondering out loud here if the New Jersey betting market is is educated enough yet to know when when they're being overcharged essentially by by people like FanDuel. Uh, I'd hope that that uh, you know knowledge will increase to the point where people are a little sharper, that people know enough to shop around lines and not just take what's given them uh, at the the nearest place to them, but. Yeah, pretty disappointing and kind of really surprising for FanDuel to to pull this out out of the gate. I I, I would have hoped for something a lot more impressive from them, honestly. Yeah, yeah and the the VIG has dropped back to where it, it's I mean the industry standard as of Wednesday, but coming out so aggressively just can't be a net win. I don't care what their hold was on Saturday; it was just a, a really bad look. Yeah, that was the that was where I was going to go with this. It has gotten back to to normal there, but. Uh, yeah, not the not the greatest thing right there. Yeah, of course, but we say this, guys, and the property still took in a million dollars in bets through the first two days. Probably probably cleared a hundred k in revenue. You know, I mean, we complain about it, but I'm not sure the public is going to complain about it. We'll we'll, we'll have to kind of see how how this plays out. But uh, I mean, they certainly had a successful opening weekend yeah. despite the despite the prices. I mean, I mean, definitely at the end of the day, when there's no competition right now in, in the area or whatever, then yeah, I, I mean, you, you can probably do whatever you want to. That's I guess basically we'll really see how this all plays out and how the kind of the lines wars and the big wars and different things play out once the, the online aspect gets going because, you know, a sharper guy or someone who is betting a little bit more money than the average Joe will certainly be looking around and seeing who is offering uh, the more attractive when it comes down to it. So uh, pretty interesting. I, I'm, I'm this is an exciting time for stuff like this when online goes live, because we will see how these different companies, again, who are backed by, you know, years and years and years and years of doing this and, and tons of case studies and things like that, uh, how they go about trying to to sway the people to use their product. DraftKings came out, teased their sportsbook product on Twitter. It was it was kind of basically just the couple of the co-founders there who were tweeting each other back and forth, a couple of screenshots and things that were going on. But, you know, listen, guys, knowing nothing more about it than the few pictures that I saw uh, looked pretty good to me. I mean, it looked pretty slick. And look, the DraftKings app that I use and everyone else uses for DFS and stuff like that is a is a is a well-functioning thing um, and, it, and it functions well. And I would imagine that we can probably expect more of the same when it comes to the online aspect. Yeah. I don't it's, think, go ahead. I, I don't think it was a coincidence that we saw this the day before the FanDuel, uh, <laughs> the FanDuel product launched in New Jersey. So yeah, we got, a, we got a small taste of what the DraftKings app is going to look like. Very similar interface to the DFS app, which is fantastic. So I think the, Sign of things, uh, sign of good things to come. Most interesting thing to me is that the um, the founder Jason Robbins seemed to indicate that uh, accounts can be shared between the DFS platform and the sportsbook platform in New Jersey. So, I'm not really sure how that's going to work from a regulatory standpoint, or if that's approved, or really, really what's going to happen with that. But right now, the indication is that the platforms will will have shared accounts and and bankrolls. That's huge. Yeah, that would be absolutely amazing. I don't know how regulatory, from a regulatory standpoint, you would be able to do that. Um, but 
listen, if they are, that would be that would be nuts. I mean, that huge, would be yeah. a huge, huge win for them. There are already obviously millions of people who have downloaded the the well, hundreds of thousands, if not you know a low million number of people who have downloaded the the app, and that's that's a huge, huge leg up. And maybe if they have money trapped on that app or, or left on that app, then it would be even bigger. Uh, not a huge amount of new regulatory news this week, and so we want to focus on a couple of things that went down that are certainly involved the gaming industry, one of which was the Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred obviously doing his rounds throughout the All-Star break here and doing a bunch of interviews, ended up on the Dan Patrick Show. And on the Dan Patrick Show, Dan Patrick just looked and said, look, where do we stand with gambling? It feels like everybody wants to get their piece, and then once they get their piece, we've settled that, then all of a sudden we have gambling. Manfred continued with, the way I think about it is this. It's a challenge and an opportunity. On the challenge side, there's been a lot written about us lobbying, but the fact of the matter is we talked to sports in Euro- we talked to sports providers in Europe when we realized this was coming. They said the biggest the single biggest mistake you can make is not being active in trying to determine what the legal framework's going to look like from an integrity perspective. So here we go, where we thought, certainly from the NBA standpoint, they had kind of moved away from this integrity talk, moved off of the, hey, you know, we need to police this so hard and things like that, and started using, you know, a royalty and different things like that when they're talking about it. Um, You know, Brett, to me... Circling back around to this integrity angle, and we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit more here in, in a second, what he thinks about it all, but just lets me know that, that Manfred here seems to be still a little bit out of touch with all of this. Yeah, but I think he makes some, some fine points here, too, and, and we'll talk about this more in a bit with a specific example, but if the leagues are going to have a monetary interest in sports betting, they need to be active in ensuring that protections are in place and that results of games aren't being influenced by outside sources or or players or referees and that's tricky because you know as we've been pointing out here at the Lions quite a bit in the past few months game integrity is failing all over the place so I think it's good that they are recognizing that but just circling back to what I've said on several shows I just think everybody's is just better off if they just keep their distance and let the the gaming regulators and operators handle the betting side of things but yeah I mean I what Listen, look, I mean, look, look, we'll talk about it here in a second with from a baseball standpoint, exactly like a real life instance where where something like this, you know, he he goes on with regarding integrity monitoring. He said we need laws, whether they're state laws, federal laws, whatever, that allow us to protect the integrity of our sport. That is our job. We're not going to delegate it to some regulator in New Jersey or whatever. With all due respect, we care more about it. It's what we're about now. Eric, when he says we care more about it, I mean, that's not the truth at all, because if you're relying on people being able to trust that a sport is being played fairly, uh, that's the only way you're going to continue to get, you know, the public and especially new bettors and different things like that to to get involved in sports betting. So from my standpoint, I'm not going to say that these sports books care more than than the league itself, but certainly the interests are aligned and, and equal. Sure. Um, I, you certainly couldn't make the case the leagues don't care about integrity, and you probably could make it that they bear the brunt of risk from legal sports betting. If they're, if you envision this risk, then the leagues would bear the majority of that. At the same time, like Brett says, it's not clear that the leagues are the best equipped to do this, that they should be the ones to do this. Um, 
you know, we talked about Wimbledon last week and tennis has its own integrity unit that may have shuffled some things under the rug to protect its clean image. So there's a conflict of interest when we, if we're going to charge the leagues with overseeing the integrity of the game, uh, that raises some questions in my mind about, about the uh, conflict of interest. No, and that's the biggest point here is not only do you want to keep an arm's length for just the weird things that could could go wrong, and again, we'll, we'll talk about the Home Run Derby here in a second, but as you mentioned, I mean, there is all kind. it's not like every sport is squeaky clean here, right? I mean, and it's not like everything is completely cut and dry. I mean, we've seen from the NFL to Major League Baseball to the NBA, how they hand down punishments, how they do different things is is completely different for some players than for other players and how the situations go about uh, in one instance can be completely different from the exact same thing happening just a little bit further down the line in a, in a different instance. So it wouldn't surprise me if if it came out, you know, let's say that the league's were completely in charge of something like this. And we found out 10 years from now that there was a big cover-up because it involved a major team, whatever, or a major player or anything like that coming from a league standpoint because that is a big black eye for that league, for the sport in general. So for me, I think the, the, the people with a lot of interest and who are pretty unbiased in this would be the sportsbook operators. The comment that jumped off the page, that one line you read, we're not going to delegate it to some regulator in New Jersey or whatever, with all due respect. That's not going to go over well at all. I mean, regulators and sports books alike tend to take pride in their ability to do their job, to to monitor betting lines and to to uh, regulate the industry. I think I'll, maybe a little more respect for for his regulators and lawmakers would have been prudent from from Manfred there. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think whoever's dog that is agrees as well. So Sorry. It's, it's, no, no. <laughs> uh, he, he continued on with, we know, you know, this is talking about, you know, engagement and things like that, which again, this is something that where he at least kind of at least comes around a tad. He said, we know, you know, you don't even need research, but there is research. Fan engagement can be improved through gaming. People are more interested in the sport. They consume more of the sport. You want to take advantage of that opportunity without letting gaming become too intrusive so he goes on to kind of take a shot at DraftKings and FanDuel where he said what you don't want is what we saw with the advertising wars between DraftKings and FanDuel and I think at the end of the day I mean that's not really anything that they're going to be able to control so I mean look he can say all that and it sounds fine and dandy but Brett at the end of the day if MGM and Caesars and William Hill and FanDuel and DraftKings and all them want to start running ads and stuff, they don't even necessarily have to be running a high frequency of ads. There's just going to be a lot of providers out there and it might even seem like there's a lot of ads going on. So, I mean, I don't think this is anything that the sports are really going to be able to control. I know, of course, that especially early on with so much competition, we're going to be bombarded with a lot of different advertising, especially, I mean, we're going to notice it a lot more than others because we're so close to it. But yeah, there's not much MLB can do about that. No, and, and, Eric, from a purity standpoint and different things like that, I mean, for me, I don't, it doesn't matter to me at all. I mean, they had logos on NBA jerseys this year. It didn't bother me at all. Half the time, I didn't even notice they were there. Uh, if there is a sportsbook logo on a jersey or whatever, it doesn't bother me in the least bit. I don't think it questions anything about the integrity of the game or any of that stuff. I mean, look, these NFL, these majority of these teams, are not charity cases here. They're out there to make money. I mean, these guys are, sure, they love sports, and I'm sure that they bought the teams 
somewhere along the way because it was something that they, you know, a sport that they loved or a team that they loved or whatever it might be. Or sometimes you just get too much money and it's kind of like one of the very few things that there's a limited amount of that, that money can't buy. So, but at the end of the day, they want to turn a profit here. And I have no problem with them taking money from these casinos and these, and these sports betting operators. Yeah. It's interesting to hear you say that about, about branding. I feel the exact same way. I, Maybe I'm a bad consumer. I barely notice this sort of things. And I mean, it's obviously a, a money making thing. It's a, you know, sponsorship is a, a, a huge money business. Uh, but yeah, at the same time, I don't, uh, you know, if, if <laughs> part of what sports betting is good at is driving fans to sports and the sports fans know these brands, sports fans are familiar with DraftKings and FanDuel, they're customers. So, uh, you know, I, I don't really see much wrong with advertising these these sorts of products within the industry. Yeah, no, n- not at all for me. And then he kind of one of the other big takeaways from that interview was talking about in stadium betting, and he said the easiest answer in gaming because all this gaming is is going to be all this gaming is going to be mobile. Once you know that, you don't have to answer questions about are there going to be kiosks or windows or any of those things. The fact of the matter is, is you're going to be able to do it on your phone, and you can't stop that whether you're in the ballpark or out of the ballpark. Probably. The smartest thing that he said here, which has been my argument and jumping up and down about who cares if there's going to be kiosks in the stadium or right outside of the stadium or anything like that, because this is all going to be mobile anyway. So who cares whether a person's doing it at a kiosk at the stadium or doing it at their phone at their seat? So, you know, I've seen people... Uh, write articles saying like, yeah, you got to keep the kiosk out of the stadium. You can't just let people just do it right there in the stadium. Like, why the hell not? Brett, why the hell not? Play devil's advocate here and tell me why not. <laughs> I can't. I mean, wh- why? who cares? Like, who cares? Seriously, <laughs> why is this a thing? Why is this even an issue? And if people are going to be betting at the stadium, isn't it better to have them betting from their seats where they're watching the game than standing in the concourse during the action trying to wait in line at a kiosk, you know? Right. I mean, it just to me, it's it's so completely absurd that this is even something people want to talk about is whether that you can bet at a kiosk or not. Like, sure, you should be able to bet at a kiosk. You, you should be able to bet inside the stadium at a kiosk. But not if you're smart, you're just going to do it from your phone sitting in your seat so you're not missing any of the game. Golly. What if what if what if your phone is dying, though, Matt? Yeah, that, there, I need to place my bet. Yeah, yeah, there it is. There it is. That's that's the thing. You definitely need to run down there in case your phone is dying. So we need kiosks then. Yes, Rob Manfred, we need kiosks. <laughs> so talking about integrity here and keeping with MLB, the Home Run Derby is part of the All-Star festivities. And there is, if you watched it, it was actually not so bad. It was, you know, I, I typically don't really get into All-Star games and different things like that. It's just not something I really dig it's kind of a glorified scrimmage most of the time but uh the home run derby did have a little bit of drama if you were watching it and bryce harper kind of came from behind to to win it there but brett there was something that was pointed out by someone as it was kind of going on that led to to you know as we move into a regulated sports betting market and 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 society here that raised a little bit of questions about it yeah, so this one slipped right by me Monday night, too. I didn't watch the Derby. I was a little nervous with Reese Hopkins participating in the middle of a playoff race. I was horrified by the thought of him possibly injuring himself, so I stayed away from it. Uh, but I found, I saw the next morning, this ended, up, this ended up being kind of a shit show for people who had money on it because Bryce Harper, in the final round, got into a nice little rhythm, and with his dad throwing pitches, started picking up the pace, and releasing pitches before the previous ball 
hit the ground. And that is against the rules of the home run derby. Uh, apparently the umpire was giving the go ahead to throw each pitch. So now the league is complicit in this now. Ooh. And no, nobody says a word. I mean, the home runs counted. Harper walked away as a champion on his home field. It was a cool story, a lot of energy. There's no way they're going to go to a video review of these home runs in a home run derby. Let the man have his moment. The problem is this affects betting tickets. A lot of books offered action on this. A lot of people had uh, wagers on Kyle Schwarber, who ended up getting second in the event. And much, I mean, players, players in these in these types of exhibition style events have a little more leeway in, in bending the rules of the game. And that's that's a problem you run into when you offer odds on these these kinds of events. And it was kind of a disaster in the betting industry. Yeah, no, I mean, this is one of the things, too, where I th- I think maybe and I know you want to take action because it's all star break. It's a dead period. You want to get some money coming in if you're a sports book. But it almost makes me think you just want to pass on on something like this because yeah. one, like you said, there's these weird rules and it's kind of like a, an arbitrary thing as to whether the ball is actually you know has landed or not or whatever. And then there's that the weird bonus where you, if, you know if you hit two balls over 440 feet, then you get the bonus. But they're using a you know a stat tracker that estimates how far the ball is going. And I don't know. To me, Eric, it just seems like something that maybe the juice isn't worth the squeeze. Yeah, it's really not a big deal. Like we said, this is a fun event. It's lighthearted. It, his dad's out there pitching to him. Everything's all all great. But you bring betting into it, and it starts to get a little serious. This tiny little trivial thing really raises some, some serious doubts about whether whether or not leagues should or would even want to be involved in policing this. I'm not sure our friend Commissioner Manfred has really thought this through all the way about what's involved. If you're gonna if you're gonna police the betting on the home run derby, then you've got to start enforcing these rules to the letter of the law. And, you know, maybe that's not really better, best for, for anybody, honestly. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is it takes away from some of the drama that was going on there and whatever. I don't know if I'm a sportsbook operator. I mean, your handle is probably going to be really low anyway on something like this. I might just keep kind of keep it at an arm's length. As we have for the last, you know, five weeks here, we kind of wrap up the show with the World Series of Poker, and we are actually wrapping up the World Series of Poker. It has concluded here in Las Vegas. We have a new main event champion. His name is John Sin. He beat Tony Miles heads up for $8.8 million. Michael Dyer, if you were following along, was a big chip leader at one point, ended up third. Joe Cata, a former World Series main event champion, finished fifth. Now, it's not so much here about, you know, Johnson and Tony Miles, who, by the way, I think are, are, are fine guys here. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But one of the issues that came up and Scott Bloomstein was actually one of the big guys that was kind of all over this on Twitter was the the kind of the grind and the schedule that these guys had to to keep up with. I mean, he mentioned that he actually got a day off where these guys did not get any days off. The, the nights were running way, way, way long. And we found even on the final hand of the entire tournament where John Sin has trips and it looks it's like you're watching at home. There's no way you're going to fold. What are you doing? But he talked about how his brain was just fried. He was delirious and was trying to, like, go over all the options and make sure he wasn't missing something (laughs) before he said call for the for the whole tournament there and things. Um, You know, Eric, let's start with you on this. Obviously, you've worked in in poker and for a a poker provider in the World Poker Tour. Uh, watching the World Series, especially the main event, which is supposedly you know the most prestigious thing that's, that goes on, 
do you think they're asking too much of these guys? Like, is this grind just just too much? I think it's really close, and I'm kind of torn on this. My gut, my gut is no. Uh, you know, you said this is the most prestigious event in poker. This is supposed to be a test. It is taxing mentally and physically. You have to play for 10 days over the course of two weeks. Um, you're going to be tired at times. You're going to be hungry. You're going to be in bad moods and good moods uh, over the course of the two weeks. I I don't really think I have a problem with it. Now, that being said, I've never played the main event, certainly never run deep in the main event, so I haven't had this problem myself. But, uh, you know, I think if it were any longer, it'd be it'd be close. But as it is, I think it's I think it's okay. That's my stance. Brett, as a guy that's covered this in Las Vegas several times, what do you what do you think about the the schedule and how they laid everything out and how these guys basically were were kind of running on fumes there at the end? I go back and forth on this. On the one hand, I want to see this as a marathon and the last man standing wins, but I also want to see the best poker possible, especially with being aired on ESPN and we're trying to draw new players to the game. And if you give players a couple days to rest in between, uh, before the final table, before playing for the biggest stakes of their life, you're going to get a better product and you're going to give each of these guys a, a fair chance at uh, playing for a title. I mean, it's, it's, I feel like it's unfair to some of the older guys right. uh, who don't have the endurance that the younger kids have. And I, I just I think you need to give these some of these players a, a fair chance. And I think a break would do that. Yeah, I mean, the last several main event champions were all in their 20s. Uh, Johnson in his early 30s. So, I mean, we're, we're it's definitely a young man's tournament, essentially, at this point with the way that that schedule kind of lines up there. And one of the other questions I have for you guys is what do we think about how friendly this is to the casual player. I mean, we talk about the numbers being up and they were, and I, and it's absolutely great, but would the numbers be even better than they are if they shortened up this tournament? Like what, would it really make that big of a difference if they played 90 minute levels instead of two hour levels, if it was shortened by a couple of days? Um, because you look at it and you know, people talk about, how these guys are, you know, the casual player, average Joe, is able to take off work if he, if he was to make a deep run. And then you hear the, you know, a lot of the poker players saying like, well, yeah, but I mean, if, if he, he's already in the money if he makes it that deep. But yeah, but his boss doesn't give a shit. I mean, like his boss doesn't care that he's in the money in a poker tournament, that he's missing like extra days of work with a text saying like, no, no, I'm still in Las Vegas playing poker. I mean, it doesn't matter to your employer and like the odds of them winning life-changing money to where they could quit their job is very, very slim when it comes to all this. I, I don't know. For me, it seems like the main event has become this this thing where they've tried so hard to please the pros in this that it's almost become recreational player, uh, you know, to the detriment of the casual recreational player. Uh, look, it's not a very rec friendly tournament anyways. I don't, the difference between taking eight days off of work and taking six days off of work for a deep run. I'm, I'm not sure is, is that significant? I understand what you're saying though. And, and yeah, it's a long grind. And if you're going to play the main event as a, as a recreational player, you, you have to commit to playing the whole main event. You know, you have to plan for the duration. So yeah, some merit to what you're saying. I think maybe 90-minute levels is not a not a bad suggestion. Well, I thank you for that vote of confidence right there. That is, that is not a bad suggestion. But I, you noted the question mark at the end of that, not a yeah. bad suggestion. Yeah, it's question mark. Yeah, maybe, like you kind of like raised the voice yeah. a little bit there. Yeah, yeah. I, I got you. Brett, are you on Team Poker Ambassador or are you not on Team Poker Ambassador? 
Uh, in what context? Well, I mean, one of the things that people always say about the main event champion is that, you know, no matter what, you're kind of forced into poker ambassadorship and that you are looked at as, you know, well, you are the world champion and you should act as such and promote the game and this, that, and the other and blah, blah, blah. Obviously, there was a, a big to-do about that very recently. Um, what say you on all of that? I think, listen, and let me say this, that, that when it got heads up, Tony Miles or Johnson, I think, are both going to be great for the game moving forward. They both seem, uh, you know, they're both very talkative with each other. They both seem like that they are going to, to, to do well here, but there have been guys in the past who said they wanted no business of all that. Yeah. And I think that's fine. I, these, these, these players aren't signing up to be an ambassador. If they win the main event, they're, they're signing up to play a poker tournament and possibly uh, win a title. I, that said, I, I think the poker world has a fine new ambassador in Johnson. The guy seems humble. He's polite. Uh, he's, he, Seems to be good with the media. I think he'll be very accepting with the fans as a world champion. Uh, and it seems to me that he loves the game. So I don't really see him vanishing like a P.S. Hines or a Peter Eastgate. But I also don't blame those two guys for kind of peacing out and saying goodbye to poker. I think that's that's perfectly fine, too. What say you, Eric? Right there with Brett. I'm pretty sure if I won the main event, you would never see me at a poker table again. <laughs> I mean, it's a great bonus. You know, sure, it's a great bonus when we get a when we get a champion who's a, an ambassador for the game. Uh, but totally agree with Brett. I, I don't think that's part of the responsibility. I don't think that's something we should be. You know, Dyer took a, a fair amount of heat on Twitter uh, during the playdown days for for being a stick in the mud kind of thing. I I kind of feel that's unfair. It's it's not his job to play for the cameras. He's there to play poker. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, I guess my only thing here is as we kind of look for these various states to continue to pass iGaming laws and hopefully poker laws as we get closer to people understanding that it's not the devil to play online poker and different things like that, it certainly, I think, helps to have a, a bright, shining face to, to kind of be out there in front of the spotlight and you know do the, do the various interviews and make people see that you know, this isn't this crazy, shady nonsense that, that, you know, basically you have this weird stigma with poker that people think about. But anyway, that's just me. Uh, and uh, on to the big one drop here. Uh, Justin Bonomo beat Fedor Holtz. Heads up, he won $10 million for that. That was a $1 million buy-in tournament, I should add. Did he win? Did he win $10 million? <laughs> Did he? Well, you know, I mean, on, on the stat sheet, $10 million. Uh, Dan Smith was third. Yeah. Right next to his name. Yeah, Dan Smith was third. Rick Solomon was fourth. Byron Caberman was fifth. Of course, we we know that Bonomo did not win all of the $10 million. He sold some of uh, some of, a piece of himself online. On, on Didn't a you have some pieces, man? Yeah, yes. yeah, I know. Yeah, thanks for rubbing that in. Uh, Bonomo did sell a piece of himself online uh, on a staking site and also brought to light that Scott Seaver apparently also had a piece of him as well as he was sitting at the table and mic'd up and said that uh, Scott Seaver actually had pieces of Bonomo, uh, Holtz, and Dan Smith. So uh, it was a great final three for Scott Seaver, apparently. Um, good for him. Uh, so, guys, listen, this has kind of brought up this conversation, and we were talking about it in our, in our private Slack chat. It was all over the Twitter machine. It was all over things that are going on. Is Justin Bonomo in the midst of what, we're, of what could be the greatest year of all time when it comes to poker, or is it already the greatest year of all time when it comes to poker, and we're only uh, sitting here on July the 18th as we really record this. Now, a couple of the other comparisons are Eric Seidel's 2011. He had a fourth and a 25K for 295,000, a third and 100,000 for 618,000. 
uh, three firsts, a, a 250K, a 25K, and another 25K for $2.4 million, $144,000, Now, one of those was the NBC Heads Up, which was not an open tournament. So it was, only, it was an invite-only type of deal. So I guess there's a little bit of an asterisk there. Uh, second in a 10K for $155,000. First in a 100K for $1.09 million. Uh, second and a fourth in a couple of epic poker events, 604,000, 184,000. But again, both of those were not, o- not open events either. Those you had to be uh, a part of and invited and things like that. In total, that's four wins. Uh, one of those in a non-open, uh, two seconds, one of those in a non-open, one third and two fourths. Uh, that fourth coming in, uh, one of the fourths in a non-open event as well. The total of 6.24 million dollars there for Seidel on Holtz's, uh, Fedor Holtz 2016 which we thought probably could never be equaled in the poker industry uh, ever until this Bonomo thing happened yeah. just two years later. Uh, a first in a 200K for $3.07 million, a sixth uh, for in a 100K for 196000 a fourth in a 10K for 190000 a fifth in a 50K for 310000 a seventh in a 50K for 122000 second in a 300K for $3.5 million. Three firsts, a 50K and two 25Ks, 637,000, a third and a 50K for 407,000, a first and 111,000 buy-in for 4.98 million, a first and a 50K for 1.47 million, and a fourth and 100K for 299,000. In total, that is six wins, one second, one third, two fourths, a fifth, a sixth, and a seventh for a total of 15.85 million. Now, guys, I remember, before we go over Bonomo's resume here, uh, I remember covering this. I was doing a show for for Poker Central called the Primetime Poker Report, and we were basically going over this Fedor Holtz year. And basically the consensus at the time was that this was never going to be equaled in the history of poker. Both of you obviously were working in poker when this was going down. Did you feel the same way? Did you like? Did you look at this and basically say, and again, for, for both of these resumes, for Seidel and Holtz, we're only focusing on the six-figure scores here. There are multiple other you know, five-figure scores that are mixed in there as well throughout the course of the year, but we're just focusing on the, on the real big hits there. Um, were you guys thinking that this was something that, could, that, that we'd never even have to talk about of being duplicated? Yeah, very much so. That 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 2016 for Fedor was incredible. I've never been around uh, a tournament series where there was one player where you just, you know, for a whole year, it seemed like every tournament he entered, he was a huge favorite to win. It was almost just presumed that he was going to win the tournament in some of the biggest buy-ins, the toughest fields. Uh, yeah, I, I never thought I would see anything like that again. Brett, on your end, looking at Seidel's 2011, it, the fact that three of those huge scores came in events that were not open to the public, does that kind of take a knock on that on that 2011 and kind of really remove him from contention of this whole greatest greatest years ever? Um, yeah, I, I tend to think that these uh, private events shouldn't count. I, 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 I'm so anti high rollers counting for anything though. So it's, it's, it's tricky for me to, to comment on, on side. I mean, Seidel had a great year in 2011. We really had, no, had never seen anything quite like that going into that year. But I mean, with, with Fedor's 2016, I mean, we had just seen amazing runs from Seidel, from Dan Coleman that it, it's, you know, it, it's possible to happen again, of course. So looking here at Fatal, uh, at Justin Bonomo's 2018 to give you the comparison, a second in 100K for 1.07 million, a fourth in a 25K for 310,000, a third in a 50K for 197,000, 
three firsts in a row um, as far as six-figure scores for him. A 25K for 556, a 10K for 190, a 250K for 4.82 million, a fifth and 100K for 489,000, a fourth and a 50K for 276,000. Then we have just a huge, huge streak of wins here. Every one of these tournaments I'm going to talk about were all wins. 25K for 457,000, 25K for 311,000, a 300K for 5 million, a 25K for 350K, a 25K for 310,000, and a 10K for 185,000. Those were all wins by Bonomo. A third and a 25K for 104,000, and then a first, of course, in the one drop that was a $1 million buy-in for $10 million. In total, that is 10 wins, a second, two-thirds, two-fourths, and a fifth for a total of $24.62 million. And we're sitting here only six and a half months into the year. Um, guys, I've, you know, I said in the Slack chat, I will continue to say it here on this podcast that I think already that this is the greatest year in poker history. And again, he's got a, he's got, you know, five and a half more months to add to this resume here, which I'm sure that he will. Um, can do either of you disagree? And, and, and if not, um, then you can just back me up here and make me feel great. I don't disagree, but okay. My take on this is that these conversations and debates are great to have in sports. I think they're silly in poker because we're all working with imperfect information. Like, how do I measure what Bonomo has done this year against Seidel and, and Holtz without knowing how much of himself he's playing for, how many entries he's in for in all these tournaments? We don't have that information when we're looking at all this data. And when measuring success, we measure success in poker by profit, by return on investment. And we don't have all that information. So I think it's safe to say that Bonham was having the best year ever in the world of high stakes tournaments. But is he having the greatest year of all time? I, I have no idea. Who the hell knows? Well, yeah, I don't know, I don't know how you can say otherwise. You know, Seidel, Seidel may have been down money in 2011. We don't know. Like you said, we don't have access to this information until until someone starts reporting ROI for poker players. We don't really have a good way to compare, you know, the the older era of poker with what we're seeing now. You know, we, we have 25K tournaments at Aria seem like every day these days. It's it's there are six figure scores to be found uh, all over the calendar, but I we don't have a better way to keep score other than other than right. prod, than uh, than than earnings. And you know, even if you put the money aside, this is still Bonomo beating the toughest players in the world consistently, time in and time out, still winning tournaments against the very very toughest players in the world. I I don't know how you look past that. Yeah, and, and listen, I'm going to uh, listen. It's an imperfect science, obviously. I mean, like the, like as for everything that you guys have mentioned. So let's just take the monetary equation out of it. And really what it comes down to for me is just the, the rate at this at where this guy is like standing on the podium, right? Like top three finishes, we're talking 13 of them, you know, already here in against, you know, again, against the best players in the world, 10 of those being wins. Like there is something to be said really. And it doesn't matter. We're just talking strictly from a, from a competitive standpoint, a competition standpoint, where it doesn't matter how much of yourself you have, it doesn't matter if you had to buy in three or four times or whatever. You're still buy, you're still getting the same amount of chips every time you buy in as the people that are that are uh, that are playing the tournament. And there's no restrictions on how many times they can buy in as well. So being able to close out ten of these against the the 
very best players in the world coming up second one time and then coming up third two other times. So really, like getting to the final three 13 different times really is what sets it apart for me because I, I understand there's not huge fields in these tournaments, but anyone who's ever, you know, grinded sit and goes, no, like, What's your win rate on a nine-person sit-and-go? It's not very high. I can probably unless you're you know really really good. I mean, it's just it's it's tough to win a nine-person tournament, much less these tournaments that have you know between twenty and forty people in them. Even if they are, you know, even if you are buying in a couple of different times. So for me, it's just the win rate that this is happening is why it's so incredibly crazy to me. That's totally fair. Yeah, it's pretty astounding. I think uh, Remco tweeted he's. he's He's earned 125,000, 125k a day throughout the through the start of 2018. I mean, obviously, that's not all his money, but we're dealing with some just absurd, absurd numbers here that we haven't really seen anyone uh, put up in poker in, in history. Yeah, and and listen, poker with Poker Go, with the advent of Poker Go, and and obviously with online starting to to make a comeback here, and hopefully start to spread across the country. With, within some of these states, uh, I think we'll see a little bit of a poker renaissance here, and, and it's certainly cool to have some of these younger guys really tearing it up. And, of course, hats off to Eric Seidel. He's continued to crush. Uh, I mean, even today, you know, I mean, he's still cashing in a lot of these high rollers and things like that, you know, several, several years later after, after and, and then, you know, whatever, 30 years later after coming onto the poker scene. He's been playing poker longer than, like, both of these guys have been born. <laughs> that, guy just cru- that guy just crushes life. He's the yeah. greatest. Yeah, I mean, he's been playing poker longer than these guys were, were born. So, I mean, yeah, it's, it's crazy to think with, with all the stuff that's going on here. Guys, as always, you can find the nuts and bolts of all the stories that we've talked about here on thelines.com, legalsportsreport.com, onlinepokerreport.com, Play Pennsylvania, all of our brother and sister sites that are going on out there tons of articles going live every single day and keeping you informed of what's going on in your state and your surrounding state so you can be sure and stay in the know when you're standing at the water cooler and somebody says something stupid about online gaming or when it's coming or when sports betting's happening you can actually set them straight because you have the facts because you saw it on one of our sites be sure and rate and review subscribe if you haven't already this will automatically just come to your phone and you will absolutely love it that you will be the first one to listen to this podcast each and every week Dustin, I mean, uh, oh man, Dustin's wow. not here. Wow, it's fine. look he's, at he's that. Listening, he's fine. Look at that. <laughs> yeah, if you want to find Duster on Twitter, uh, Dustin on Twitter, you can at Dustin Galker. Uh, no, Brett, where can people find you on Twitter? At Brett Colson. And Eric, I will tweet maybe once a week. And Eric. Yeah, no one should follow me either, but Eric underscore Ramsey, if you'd like to. Yes, absolutely. Yes, they should follow you as you, as you gallivant across this great nation of ours, going to all the most exotic locations with all these resorts and sports books that are opening across the country. They should definitely, definitely follow you. You're a great follow. And if you want to follow me at Matt Brown M2, it would be appreciated. Guys, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.